Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 225, recorded December 12th, 2015. So today we're going to uh, do another Alien Spotlight. This one also called Romulans. Right. Uh, which is not related to the Burn series, per se, that we've done the last two episodes. And I disagree with that. There might be a few ties. We'll talk about it. I, but, I, mean, I it's think not there's my, a big tie. It's definitely not John Byrne. You agree with it's me on that? It's definitely not John Byrne. <laughs> but it's all, but it's, in my opinion, this is all part of the larger IDW Romulan epic. Right. All right. So then once we finish that, we'll do uh, another alien spotlight that, that I've kind of been wanting to do, just to kind of get your opinion on Tribbles. Mm-hmm. And then we'll follow it up with Captain's Log Jellico, which I think actually will be the last Captain's Log we'll do because we've done them all. We've which done is, all the rest. Which is too bad. I enjoy those. Yeah. I still wish they would have done that next issue. Yeah. Garrett. Yep. Yep. Never, Rachel never, Garrett. Yeah. Yep. Never to be. Never to be. Damn it. But instead, we, we're going to... I mean, we've still got quite a few of these alien spotlights to do. Right. So... It, in saying that, uh, I guess we can just go ahead and jump right into it. Let's do it. So, uh, as I mentioned before, this is Alien Spotlight Volume 2, Romulans, number one. So, it came out May of 2009, written by Ian Edkinton, art by Wagner Reese, color by Priscilla Ribeiro, letters by Neil Utaki, edits by Scott Dunbuyer. Cover art by David A. Williams, and cover color by Moose Bauman. The cover in question is a Romulan looking right at the reader, all evil-like. And we have uh, two different birds of prey soaring, one beside him and one below him. And then there's like a blue light shining in your eye. J.J. Abrams would be proud with those those lens flares. Or at least the, the light in your eye. Anyways, the story starts off with a Romulan commander standing in the middle of a badly damaged bridge. His ship has taken a severe beating, and several of his crew are seen lying dead or dying. The ship is dead in the water, with several sections of the ship, including engineering, open to space. How did this all happen? You might be wondering. So we flash back to 48 hours earlier. The Romulan's name is Augustus, and he's watching a recorded message of himself where he tells the people that he's leaving his command in the military to join the Romulan Senate. After they watch the recording, he and his wife talk about this huge career move. They talk about how his former friend was found guilty of joining the unification movement. Though Augustus was exonerated, They worry that others might see him as possibly being in league with those radicals. Augustus sees this as his last chance to make a difference within the Empire. Elsewhere, the Praetor and his advisor are watching the same video that Augustus was watching. The Praetor 
has obvious distaste for the man. The advisor tells the praetor that perhaps he should support the new senator since Augustus is popular and could be used uh, to help maneuver some other senators into position. The praetor calls for a special meeting with Augustus. They meet and the praetor congratulates him and offers him to leave his military career with a bang and shows him the final Romulan dreadnought. He offers Acostas the chance to command the ship one last time in a war game scenario. Acostas agrees. The game in question is for the Dreadnought to find and destroy another craft controlled by Romulan criminals. It's basically a life sentence for the Romulan criminals because the criminals have never won in these games. But if they were to win, they would get to go free. Acostas' crew soon finds their foes and attack. The criminal's craft takes severe damage and loses most of its shields, but suddenly they drop all their torpedoes as if they were mines, which Acostas' ship plows through and takes heavy damage on their own. The captain of the prisoner ship contacts them, and it is none other than Acostas' former friend and known unificationist. Acustus orders full fire and they destroy the criminal ship. An officer on the bridge reports that a ghost image appeared during the attack. Suddenly a small craft appears and disappears. Each time it appears, it fires and severely damages the much larger dreadnought. Severely damaged, Acustus orders the torpedoes to be primed for manual release and he plans to fire on the unheard of cloaking ghost ship. But before he can do so, the ghost ship arrives and destroys the Dreadnought for good. Later, the Praetor tells the commander of the ghost ship, which happens to be the advisor from earlier, that the test was successful and that these new cloaked ships will be the backbone of the Romulan fleet. The end. Wait a minute. The hero, if there was a hero, the closest thing to a hero of the story, was blown out of the sky. What? Wait a minute! Very strange, right? Yeah, so let me just say that I am not crazy about this comic. I think the artwork is really good, even though it makes everybody look like superheroes. <laughs> right. Okay, I'm going to talk about that later. But the main point is, I think the artwork is very good, the coloring is very good, it's very vivid, it's eye candy. Right. But the story is rather an adult one. A lot of Star Trek stories, they give you a hero to root for, and they figure out how to overcome insurmountable odds in the end to be victorious, and you feel good because, you know, you can identify with them and you're rooting for them. That is right. not this story at all. No. No. So I like it because it was a little bit more, a little bit more of an adult story that doesn't have to pander to the reader and try to get them to like it so hard. But on the other hand, it was like, ugh. It's not a very satisfying story. And it's a very confusing story. Um, yeah. Be, and let me just tell you my, my number one beef with the story. Yeah. I have no idea when it was supposed to take I know. Place. Unification. I know. You, you grabbed on that. So, right, you think yeah. it's, so you think it's next-gen time frame. Well, and look at their costumes. Their costumes are not the culottes and sash. And I agree. That, uh, that we're used to seeing uh, you know, Taz era. <laughs> <laughs> the gauchos, yeah, right. So I mean, no. they're not the same uniform no, but, that 
uh, that you know the Taz era should yeah. be wearing. But does it look like anything that was a next gen era? I don't think so. I don't know. These look like you know, like you said, superhero black spandex unitard whatever. Right. I don't yeah. know where. So, so it's, that's why it's... when I first started reading it, I thought, oh, this is going to take place, you know, after maybe even after Nemesis, you know, that that kind of timeline. Right. Uh, but, but the I thing is, okay, so, and, and and I agree with you. It's a con- it's a confusing story because if you take a look at different things in here, oh, it must be Taz. Matter of fact, okay. So the big thing, the the big thing is, no one seems to know about cloak ships. They're not even calling them cloak. They're calling them ghost ships. Right. And this very experienced commander, a very successful commander, is totally blown to bits because. He wasn't expecting his nemesis in this thing to be a cloaked ship. I mean, he's right. acting like he's never seen one before. Exactly. So that makes you say, well, when, okay, when were the first time they would have seen cloaked ships? Ah, Taz. Somewhere in that time frame. Also, the Praetor here, although he's got a superhero physique, not a skinny little runt, he is just as much of a slimy, untrustworthy, scheming, manipulative so-and-so, just like the one we saw in uh, the Burn trilogy and everything. Right. So it's I get conflicting things here. Uh, was this meant to be a standalone thing that just took a lot of different elements and just threw them into a new story that wasn't supposed to be connected with anything? Personally, and this is a personal opinion, I think there's enough stuff here that matches the continuity of the other issues that I'm going to say this is prior to the issue we just saw. So are you, you're saying that this Praetor oh, no, 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 is no, 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 the no, same Praetor? I, I, yeah, okay. Not, not the yeah, first yeah. one. I, I mean the one we did you know, weeks ago in what, uh, two, two, three? The, the John Byrne, the last two, epi- exactly. the last two so, episodes. Exactly. Right, yeah. Those six those, I, I knew what you meant. Okay, so... Because if you take away the unification idea and the fact that the costumes are different, this could slip in very nicely. So you've got a slimy Praetor, maybe the same Praetor. I say it's the same Praetor, only a lot beefier in this one. And same cloak ship, although the look is totally different. The cloak, the look is pretty cool, quite frankly. And, and then the next set of things happening is when he gets the uh, commander to take it over to take on the uh, Federation. If you look past the uniforms, uh, then it's just the unification thing that really rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. Because there was no unification until... As, well, Locke. as far as we know. Well, wasn't... In the Balance of Terror, weren't they kind of surprised to see Vulcanoids on the Federation ships too? I mean, uh, True. Didn't it kind of go both ways? Yeah. And, and by the way, we don't know what he means by unification. We're just assuming it's unification between the Romulan race and the Vulcan race, and okay, that and so that makes oh, sense. But all right, if, if we you're really don't tell know me that it's unification between the the Remans and the Romulans. I'm not necessarily saying. I'm not like, necessarily yeah, saying that. Yeah, he'll kick. Yeah, that's it. What? <laughs> we don't know. Romulans what... and Remans. If if it was if they would have said something that other than making it sound like it's the Vulcans and Romulans unifying, well, all I they would have no problems. All with they it. did is use a word. Yep, and you don't but know it's what a word it meant. synonymous with a different era. Yes, it is. Everybody knows. I completely agree. I I was thinking the same thing. 
As soon as I read uh, Unification, it was like, uh, uh, oh, next gen. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Whatever. Maybe this is supposed to be set in the J.J. Abrams universe. <laughs> so it's, uh, maybe it's a parallel dimension of some kind. Maybe. Because yeah, I got I mean, I to tell you, these ships look cool. I like them. They're all slick. And, oh, uh, man. And the insides all look super modern. Right. So the Dreadnought, that's supposed to be like, oh, uh, you know, not, you know, that's the old one that they're getting rid of. That looks pretty right. cool. I like it. It's, you know, the, the front of the nacelle, it almost looks like it's like a talon, you know, where, you know, you had the spinny little orb. Mm-hmm. In the Taws Enterprise, front of the nacelle, they got this this nasty looking talon kind of thing coming out of the front of the nacelles. I think it looks cool. Yeah, no, it, it, it's very nice looking. Yeah, which made me. That's why I was thinking that it was you know like post Nemesis type type yeah. timeline. Well, look at the oh, so the published date on this comic is May two thousand nine, right? Mm-hmm. So that is the same month and year. I'm pretty sure it came out in May that the reboot J.J. Abrams movie came out. Oh, it's not set in that universe. I know, I but it'd be kind of cool if it was. <laughs> it would have been cool. Well, it would explain more things anyway. Because the ships look cool. They got cooler outfits. And just I, like in J.J. Abrams' universe, you can just throw in random words, Star Trek yeah. words, and we're just supposed to buy it. Oh, well, okay. So unification. Oh, of course they have a Cardassian, a, a Cardassian sunrise. Yeah, that makes total sense. It's Star Trek. Oh what? wait a minute! Did they say Cardassian sunrise in this, or are you just bringing yeah? That up? It, no, and, and Taz and uh, in the first J.J. Abrams movie, they mention Cardassian sunrise. Oh really? But and timeline wise, they should not know who the Cardassians are. Oh, I complete. Oh, was that a drink? Yeah, that that Kirk orders at the bar before cupcake. Oh, got it. Or no, Ahura orders it. Okay, okay. Before she orders her uh, Bud Classics or whatever. Okay, so you you know they got money from Anheuser Busch for that. Yeah, but this kind of fits, doesn't it? I mean, the ships look all nice, and this could be the setup for a reboot. Even though that that's ridiculous, (laughs) I I don't think I don't think they had the relationship with. um, I don't think Orsi had the relationship going with the IDW folks. Then I mean, they made Um, the movie adaption, but that was about it at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, and what gets me is oh, that Ian Edkinton has done so much, uh, so much Star Trek stuff. He knows Star Trek, so I don't know what happened. Okay, so Countdown. Sorry, I gotta re- I gotta go back. So Countdown. Yeah, Countdown. Countdown came out when the movie came out, didn't it? It did. Yeah, you're right. It came out before the movie, right? right so right. they must have been talking to each other. Well, if you tell me that this is set in that continuity. You know, in some slightly altered continuity, I, I will give it to you. Well, I, I don't know that that's the case. I'm just trying to make things. Yeah, better. I know. Well, you're not going to know the answer. No. I'm just saying, Ian Edkinton. Yeah. He knows better. Yeah. Yeah. He has just written tons of Star Trek stuff. Yep. He knows Star Trek probably more than better than any of us because he came up with a lot of it. Right. Uh, so I don't know what happened with this this story. Yeah. It's interesting though. It's not my favorite, or at least but it's maybe it was art. Maybe he wrote a story. If maybe if we take out the unification thing and mm-hmm. just read it and not look at the art, I can uh, totally see it fitting in the before Balance of Terror. Yeah, right. And before the John Byrne stuff. Yep, yep. But it's just that unification dig 
for me. I can't get it past. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. Um, another thing I find interesting, I mean, there are parallels here. If this had nothing to do with the John Byrne stories and that whole thing, then I think there, I mean, you, you've got a wimpy, well, wimpy, you got a slimy, devious praetor, right? Mm-hmm. Right. You've got a hero that reminds me a lot of, although he's obviously Acostas is not the same guy as uh, was the commander in Balance of Terror. Um, and obviously he dies, so certainly not. But he, the prototype, the hero, right. I think there's a lot of similarity. He's got a wife who's pretty, right. was pretty, pretty saucy, sassy, and pretty knowledgeable about what's going on. As a matter of fact, she's the one that knows Acostas is just walking into death. I mean, right. she knows that. Okay, that's been used in the in the other stories. The other comics we've been doing right. lately. Okay, yeah, so uh, Acostas, his best—he's got a best friend from like academy days and whatever. Well, so does Gaius. Only Gaius's friend is a little bit more like, um, what is it? Uh, well, a, a little, a little—he's more of a, a jokey kind of guy. Uh, but they were both their first officers at one point. I mean, right. So, so okay. So good point. You know, there's a lot of parallels in this story to some of the elements we saw in the other comics. so yeah. Right, So, and they all came out within a year and a half of each other, so I don't know what IDW was... I mean, were they just on a Romulan kick? I don't know. I don't know, but like I said before, the idea of telling a... I mean, I... When, I, when we first started talking about doing the IDW Romulan stories and the fact there were several... Alien Spotlights, I was thinking, and then John Byrne had his own things going on. It's like, I thought they were all separate stories. I mean... Yeah, I did too. I didn't know they had anything to do with each other, but, gosh, it's like somebody was going, hey, let's do the epic, the Romulan epic, rather than just one-offs. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Fascinating. No. Fascinating. It is fascinating. And if there was any type of artistic continuity... It, it would just make it a, a lot smoother. Yeah. Yeah, this is totally different. But this is nothing like John Byrne stuff. Yeah, and if they... I mean, if you could somehow buy that this story happened during John Byrne's Praetor's right. father's time and that this yep. is his father, but that doesn't really make sense either because this Praetor says the the dreadnoughts are over and, and that these new birds of prey are going to be the next big thing. Right, which leads straight into Balance of Terror. Right. And uh, here's another one. I just If you look at the last page, the Praetor has this huge mammoth statue to Acostas. I was going to say that. Isn't, isn't that weird that, that is he the, did the same and they did the same thing in John Byrne's Hollow Crown? Yes, exactly. Same thing. How do they build so many of these statues for <laughs> <that> people they <laughs> hate? Well, in both cases, it's to, the Praetor is doing it for manipulative purposes. Yeah, but it... Right, if this happens before that one, it just makes this one seem even more of like, we're just going to copy exactly what John Byrne already did. Reboot. Just this change is, the names a little reboot bit. Universe. <laughs> reboot Universe. This reboot is, This is the J.J. Abrams verse. So this is the, the guy, or this is the curious of the, the new continuity. Well, but he died already, so maybe. <laughs> but but somebody has to challenge the Enterprise, right? With the cloak right. ship. Is that going to be this Admiral guy? Yeah. 
Because you would think, uh, you know, this Admiral guy is like the right-hand man of the Praetor. So Let's see if this guy looks like Leonard, Mark Leonard with a beard. He doesn't look like Mark Leonard. Yeah, but he has a he, look, he has a beard, so it he, could be the evil, he looks evil like, version. He of looks like Admiral Zod. Or Zod. Admiral? Is he an Admiral? No. He's General. General. He looks like General Zod. <laughs> okay. I don't see it, but gotcha. Oh, come on. Look at the He's hairline. He's an angry dude, and look at the hairline. It's all it's all plastered back like the... Uh, yeah. It's in a ponytail. Well, I know, but it's pulled back in the same kind of a, a hairline as, uh, you know, in the Christopher Reeve one. Oh, the Terrence Stamp? That's what I'm saying. No. Yeah, Terrence Stamp. That's it. He looks like more like a Terrence Stamp Zod, but with a beard. Well, they, they beard. both they had the same beard. There you go. Anyway. <laughs> you got the little goatee kind of thing, whatever. Okay, enough. That's all I have to say about this one. Yep, I'm ready to go. Although I got to say, coming at the end of all this Romulan stuff, it's like, this is cool. I didn't realize Romulans could be so interesting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right, well, you're ready to see how uh, how they switch over to some tribbles? Yes, except I also want to say Moose Bauman. Mm-hmm. So Moose Bauman did the color for this. Yeah. Wasn't Moose Bauman one of the main coloring guys with Malibu? Um, I don't know. We've definitely seen Moose Bauman before. We definitely have. There's no two ways about that. Uh, but I don't. Th- I didn't think it was within context of IDW. I thought it was Malibu, but all right, I'm just going to mention it. Okay, I'm done. Well, we can look it up real quick. Well, we don't want to. We don't want to lose momentum. Besides, there are triples waiting, and they're hungry. Okay, well, why don't you look it up while I do this? Okay, right, and then maybe we can come back to it. Okay, so I get to do the next one, which is going to be Alien Spotlight Tribbles. And this one's publish date is March of 2009. Writer is Stuart Moore. Art and color by Mike Hawthorne. Or Hawthorne. Did I get that wrong? Anyway, maybe I left the R out. Uh, Additional color by James Brown. Letterer, Richard Starkings. Editor, Andy Schmidt. Cover art by David Williams. And color by Moose Bauman, of the cover, that is. Cover A shows two Klingons in a sea of tribbles trying to keep from drowning. Cover B is a picture of Kirk sitting a pile of tribbles, looking at them with annoyance and resignation to his dire situation. It's not dire. I just threw that in for the heck of it. A particularly enterprising tribble sits atop the apex of a pile of his brethren. It thinks simple tribble thoughts, the most important of which being... Hungry, hungry, warm hands, gone away, wind flow. As it looks to the sky, it sees a big, heavy-looking object coming down towards it. Warm hands? The object is a spaceship, and it lands hard on planet Cirilla 4, and coincidentally crushes about 1,000 dribbles. A door opens and four humans exit with Klingons hot on their tail. They are firing at each other. The Tribbles think, warm hands? Hungry? Grain seed? 
One of the humans is shot in the leg and falls into a very soft, triple-covered ground. The last man out of the ship is shot and disintegrated painfully. A crewmate named Carter sees a disruptor moving towards him, conveyed by furry little creatures. Help, warm hands? He picks up the gun and has a Klingon dead to rights, but he does not need to fire. The Tribbles attack the Klingons. Ruffelfurs! Ruffelfurs bad! The Klingon calls for retreat, and they all take cover in the ship and shut the door with a loud clang. The humans are dumbfounded, but happy to be alive. Warmhands returned! Happy! Hungry! Ruffelfurs gone? Hungry! Hungry! The humans talk about retaking the ship. Its cargo of dilithium crystals would take the rest of their lives to pay back to their company. The buff lady crew member named Tink tells a wimpy-looking guy named Gary, It's a good thing those furry little things fight far better than Gary does. They wonder what these fuzzy little things are. There are so many of them. Carter tells his crewmates what he knows of Cerilla 4. It was mapped around 100 years ago and had a thriving humanoid civilization. It was cooler back then, so climate change obviously took place, because it's hot as heck now. Apparently the people immigrated since. It looks deserted except for these fuzzies. Tink recognizes they must be hungry, and indeed many of them have thoughts of hunger as they are purring. They look to Carter for a plan since he used to be Starfleet. Carter says, hold up, he only did one year at the academy, so don't look to him for miracles. They ask him why he quit. Carter says he's not sure. Too soft-hearted, he guesses. Like the Klingon, he should have shot back there. Maybe they could have gotten the cargo back. They tell him not to be so hard on himself. Carter says, there may be a way to get the cargo back, but it will be dangerous. Meanwhile, in the ship, Lieutenant Krang is deriding his men for their cowardice against the balls of fur. He receives a ship status that says it will be a matter of hours until a ship can depart again. In the meantime, an overly gung-ho underling named Kassar volunteers to be on the hunt for the humans. If they are not caught and killed, it will bring them dishonor. The lieutenant is getting some major peer pressure here. He does not like it, turns, and strikes the oaf to the ground. He says he is in charge, and they have better things to do than hunting a few humans on foot across this sweat box of a world. He sends most of them off to make engine repairs, telling them to act like Klingons, even if they are the dregs of the Empire's military. Later, a Klingon is on watch duty, still fuming over how they let the humans go. Suddenly, the hull sensors ping movement outside. Gun in hand, he opens the door to kill the human scum. He is taken aback by a humanoid form covered in those fuzzy balls of fur. It comes towards him as a powerful female fist emerges from all that fur and punches him square in the nose. On the ground, the Tribbles start climbing up the Klingon's leg, thinking, Ruffle fur, angrily. 
It was the powerfully built Tink that punched him. Carter runs up to her side with gun drawn. Plan A, take back the ship. Plan A quickly turns to Plan B when three armed Klingons enter the room. Carter and his team run off and take cover. The Klingons fire a few shots, then re-enter the ship. Kassar reports the engines and sensors are repaired, but the weapons are still offline. Kassar offers that they are hardly worth repairing due to their punniness. Lieutenant Krang gives the order to lift off. He says he has a plan to deal with the humans. Carter and company watch helplessly as the ship lifts off the ground. Meanwhile, the Tribbles that came into the ship with Tink are still on board and start looking around for something to eat. They find the containers of dilithium crystals and keep looking. One of them thinks, grain seed. Meanwhile, the ship is in hover mode directly above the humans and a sea of Tribbles. Krang orders his underlings to fetch some sonic grenades. Not originally designed as air-to-ground weapons, but one improvises in a pinch. They start dropping the grenades, but not very accurately. Property and Tribbles are blasted to bits, but they miss the humans as they go on the run. Carter gets a chance to stop, aim, and fire. He hits Lieutenant Krang square in the chest. Meanwhile, the Tribbles are feeding off the grain, and when their appetite is satisfied, they think it's time to help the Warm Hands. The humans keep running as the grenades keep falling just behind them. The Tribbles on the ship get into position and start breeding. The few Tribbles that made it into the ship are breeding like mad. They start to bend metal in the engine room. On the bridge, the pilot reports they have lost main power. The ship comes down with a crash. The remaining Klingons run out of the ship, but rather than engage with the humans that are prepared for a fight, they just run right past them, pursued by Tribbles. Later in the ship, surrounded by Tribbles, they determine they can repair the engines in a few days. They all agree not to tell the company anything about the Tribbles or the fact that they gave the grain away to feed them. They agree to tell them the Klingons boarded the ship and took the grain, but luckily they were able to save the dilithium crystals. Tink says the cover-up seems like an awful lot of effort just to protect the Tribbles from possible retribution. In the end, Carter says he guesses he is just soft-hearted as the Tribble he holds in his hand thinks... Warm hands. The end. Your triple impression is awesome. Well, I got it from you. <laughs> the warm hands? Yeah! Yeah! Well, okay. a long time ago, we were reading some triple comic, and you yeah. talked about this one. Oh, did I? And you told me about <laughs> it, and you did an impression. like, like It's like in this comic, Ken... It's like you can see what they're thinking. <laughs> and they say things like, warm hands, you know, you know, things like that. Food, you know, oh, hungry. And it's like, so I got it from you. Well, you, you, well, that's exactly the way I heard it. So I guess, uh, I guess that explains why I thought it was so good. <laughs> <laughs> so that is kind of a cool gimmick they have, right? Right. You actually get a window into the mind of a triple. Yeah, which is cute. So, where does this story fit in continuity, in your opinion? 
Nah. <laughs> I have no. I, I I don't. Well, it's bumpy headed Klingons. Um, I know it's bumpy headed Klingons, but, um, but they also don't seem to know what Klingon what tribbles are. So that's well, why. Yeah, I, but how many people was... do? It's like. Okay, so Klingons hate tribbles. Okay, tribbles but, hate Klingons. But when, everybody knows that. But when the okay, so when they were first exposed to tribbles by Cyrano Cyrano Jones, right? Right. They didn't know what tribbles were called, right? Ahura and Chekhov were like, "What are these things?" So um, I don't think it was common knowledge. They were not tribbles were not common knowledge back then. So, I thought the Klingons knew who they were, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I I don't know. So what? What? Uh, I don't know. It it doesn't matter. Yeah. Just <laughs> the thing is, I don't think they were common knowledge. So just because these people that are just like. You know, they're just just shipping people. They're like they're like the UPS guy. So, uh, you know, the fact that they don't necessarily know what tribbles are, I don't think it says that much. No, I'm talking about the Klingons. Oh, that the Klingons don't know. Well, no. So, again, they were they were first exposed to it on Space Station K9. And really, how you, you think Kolwas going to want to talk about it much? Oh, uh, that was the first time they were exposed to it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, the, but the, the, trouble the tribbles, tribbles, obviously, in this story, the tribbles definitely know who who the Klingons are. I mean, they call them ruffle furs, and well, they knew just by sight. Well, okay, hold on. Th- that's an interesting point. At the beginning, they were talking about warm hands and stuff, and it's like, well, how do they know about humans, um, and grain seed and things like that? I mean, all that makes you think it's like a direct. Li- these what, are these the same tribbles that were on K nine. That, that's uh, what I was wondering. But, I mean, it, but suppose... It doesn't make sense. Right. So I, I don't know. Um, but I think it just... I think they just came up with the name Ruffle Furs because these guys are jerks and they make our fur ruffle. So... <laughs> uh, I, I don't know that there's any direct link between the events on Trouble with Tribbles and this these people. I don't right. know. I don't so know. Am I, just over, or, am I overthinking it? Maybe. I don't know. It is a lighthearted story. Yeah, and, yeah, it's not. Like a, uh, so you can't. So I'm not. I'm not sure what time period it is. Right. I, I was just trying to figure it out. Yeah. So what about the well, the Klingon uniforms? Did that tell you something? Mm, well, the bumpy heads make you automatically think that next it's gen. Next gen. Yeah, it could be. Who knows? Could be. Who knows? Okay. And he says what on Praxis? So obviously there's still a Praxis. Yeah, they do mention the Praxis, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, which I thought was a nice little nod. Right. Well, regardless, it was it was an interesting story. I I thought the triple point of view was was kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> exactly. the the only The only problem I really had was, uh, I mean, the the Klingon or not the Klingons, the Tribbles breed constantly, right? I, I didn't never got the feeling that they could decide when they did and didn't want to breed. Well, I thought as soon as they ate, they started breeding. Well, I I think the only thing that I think is established is if they don't have food, they don't breed. Right. So they're kind of like gremlins. Or or if they get too cold. Okay. So if, right. Okay. Well, they're like gremlins. You don't want to get them wet and you don't want to feed triples or else there'll be trouble. Right. Right. So, anyways, and the fact that they were able to breed so many so fast—oh, yeah—they were able to break through the uh, and, and they knew and they knew of, and they knew where to breed. Right. So these 
they have to be intelligent to some degree. I mean, if they went into the local John and just started breeding there, we'll fix them. Nothing. <laughs> but but they bred apparently in a sensitive part of the ship that was able to take out main power. How did they know that? It was the in, it was the engines. It was the uh, the intermix control. Well, I know, but the... how does a triple know that? Yeah, no, they shouldn't. But they did. They they made a not know what an intermix chamber is, but they knew to breed in just the right place to uh, knock out main power, which I found was fascinating. Right. And also, they were able to damage it enough that it brought the ship down, but not so bad that Gary could not fix it in a few days. Right. So, good job, Tribbles. Yeah, also a good job is um, the Klingon commander, he, he doesn't want to have anything to do with chasing down the the humans right. or messing with the Tribbles. He just wants to leave. Right. And then he has that sub-commander that's like, uh, in... Uh, Klingon Charter 143-2. We're supposed to, you <laughs> yeah, know, chase right. them no matter what. And then he's like, oh, fine. We'll just float up here and throw grenades. But if he wouldn't have done that, they would have just taken off. Oh, yeah. Triples would have been gone off with them. So, oh, yeah. Man, that's coincidental. Well, it w- Good thing for the, the sub-commander. That's all I'm saying. The little nerdy guy that's, like, quoting yeah. Klingon uh, etiquette. Right. But the other thing that's good is Plan A is the thing that got the Tribbles into the ship in the first place. So, on the surface, Plan A looked like a disaster. But at least it got Tribbles into the thing. Which, of course, was not part of, <laughs> you know, Carter's idea, the plan. But right. it's a good thing it happened. Is Tribble camouflage? Is that what you're talking about? Well, yeah, them, try- them trying to get into the ship and take it back. Yes. Right. Yeah. So that was Plan By A. Dressing- by dressing in Tink. Tribbles. That was ridiculous. It was ridiculous, but it's supposed to be a triple story. It's supposed to be light. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. And it's a good thing that the only female in the crew is like uh, like Worf or something. She is like big and strong and muscular. Right. Uh, she's good. Yeah. Tink. And I love the name. Of, her name is Tink. It reminds you of Tinkerbell. Peter Pan. Of course. Yeah. It's completely Peter Pan. That's funny. Tinkerbell. That's funny. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. It's cute. Yeah. Um, last thing about the triple camouflage thing. Yeah. Um, it really reminded me of the animated series triple episode where the triples would form into these giant balls of triples. Oh, right. Okay. So this, this kind of reminded me of that. Okay. Except it was around a, a person. Right. Yeah. Anyways, that's it. Yeah, uh, I don't think I have any more comments, actually. Um, I don't... Nah, nothing worth mentioning. It was a good, light-hearted story. Yeah, it was nice. I liked it. Artwork was, you know, fitting. A little cartoony. Uh, the color was nice. I mean, it's it, it looked good. It looked good. Yep. It was still detailed enough that, I, you know, there's a lot of nice detail and things looked, like, realistic to some degree. But, yeah, not so much that... You couldn't see the humor in it, too. Right. The The art style almost reminded me of, like, a a Disney-type hmm. art style. Mm-hmm. Like, it, like you know, something like from the Aladdin or, right. or like, the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That that kind of genre of, right. of Disney animation. Right. Yeah. Not that you yeah. mention it. I hadn't thought about that, but, yeah. 
I think you're right. right. I agree. Which I'm not saying as is, is a bad thing. No, not at all. Kind of... All right. Well, you ready to move on to uh, Jellico? Our last, uh-huh. our last captain's log. Let's do it. All right. So we're going to do Star Trek Captain's Log Jellico. This came out. I see 2010. Oh, here it is. October, October 2010. Written by Keith R. A. D. Candio. Art by J.K. Woodward. So the uh, paintings that Ken loves so much. Letters by Chris Mowry. And edits by Scott Dunbar. So there was two covers for this one. The first one is the uh, art cover, which has some headshots of Jellico and a Cardassian. And in between them, we see the shape of an Excelsior-class ship, maybe at warp. And then the photo cover is Captain Jellico and Captain Picard, both in their dress uniforms. So the story has Commander Leslie Wong being transferred or assigned to Starship USS Cairo. And this is an Excelsior-class ship, captained by none other than Captain Jellico. And she is greeted at the transporter pad by her new captain, and in a very curt manner and very reminiscent to the way Ronnie Cox portrayed the captain in the Next Generation episode's Chain of Command, he tells her that they are stationed in this sector to protect Cap Agena Station, and they are interested in a Oort cloud that is also here in the solar system. And it also seems that the Cardassians are also very interested in the cloud. With that, he abruptly leaves, and she is left on the bridge. The days pass. Wong learns that the shifts change every six hours instead of the Federation norm of eight. Jellico is very abrupt with his response when she inquires about this. More time passes, and as Wong is reporting for her next shift on the bridge, a young Bajoran ensign takes it upon herself to call for yellow alert. Wong stops this and questions the woman as to why she would do that. The Bajoran tells her that there is a Cardassian ship detected outside of the solar system. Wong gets the information that they have on the ship and meets with the captain about the situation. Jellico immediately asks if she contacted the Cardassians. Wong admits that she did not, and he chastises her about this. Jellico opens communications with the Cardassians, and they talk a bit about how the Cardassian is still outside the Federation-claimed area of space. The Cardassian claims that he's just interested in the Oort Cloud, and he's not doing anything wrong. Once communications is closed, Jellico asks for a long-range sensor read on the ship. The young ensign from earlier reports that the ship is a science vessel with only five torpedoes and a single launcher and a single low-grade disruptor. She does state, however, that there is a strange EM emission causing a little bit of interference. Jellico openly praises the woman. Wong thinks to herself that Jellico is praising this girl, and yet he has done nothing but critique her. Jellico lays out a plan to remove short-range sensors to boost long-range, thinking they will not need the short-range in this situation. He orders Wong to go to engineering to oversee the modifications within one hour. 57 minutes later, the modifications are complete, and they have proof that the Cardassian ship is actually just this side of the border. And this is all due to an elliptical pattern of the, the farthest planet. Jellico opens communications again and orders the Cardassian to leave. The goal refuses and instead rushes through the system towards the space station. As soon as he's within 
firing range, he opens fire on the station with much more firepower than they believed that he had. It seems that the EM emission earlier was masking the ship's true potential. The Cairo is without short-range sensors. It will not be very useful in this fight. Wong comes up with the idea to use the station sensors as a set of eyes for them. This strategy works, and the Cardassian attackers are quickly disabled and captured. Later, Jellico and Wong meet in his office. He tells her that he is very impressed with her and hopes that she will stay on board. He also tells her that he's transferring the Bajoran woman due to her jumping the gun on that yellow alert and ignoring Wong when bringing up findings from the censors. Wong agrees to stick around for a little while. The end. Interesting. I enjoyed the book. Although I will say it was a little on the dry side. Right. I mean, it kind of seemed, it was kind of striking me almost like a police procedural series. Like Dragnet? Well, Dragnet or CSI or uh, what's, what, what's that one with NCIS? You know, one of those where, you know, there's a lot of very detailed procedural things going on and there's by the book stuff, which is really the only way you could have a Jellico story. It just kind of it just kind of struck me that it was a little dry and a little oh did you do this and did you do that and yeah it's against the rules doing that and uh, right right but it's still odd that Jellico still bends the rules though so it's kind of like which rules does he change on his so own what, what's he bending what the whole shift change so he made a big deal that he changed the shifts to six hour shifts and how dare she question it kind of thing. Mm, oh, good point. Good point. So I mean, kinda... it, so he's okay with making his own rules if he thinks that it's within his prerogative. So he goes by the book, except when the book allows him to write his own book or passages of his own book. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, he just seemed kind of all over the place, which I guess is kind of the way he was in Chain of Command, too, right? It's his way or, or nothing. Well, yeah, but definitely normally he's saying his way is by the book. So I don't think he's necessarily an overly creative man. He does seem to cling to the rules, but I guess there are exceptions. Right. I don't know. He, he was very, you know, I, I don't know, too gruff. You know, I, I just – I don't know. I, you just think that like, – like I think we talked earlier, the uh, you, you would think that you would want a commander that's a little uh, a little more approachable than this guy. It yeah. seems across. Yep. This guy's almost like what Picard was originally in like season one, Next Generation. Only worse. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's true. And, and you think about it – well – I mean, quite frankly, your life is in this guy's hands. I mean, you, eh, maybe you want somebody that's a little bit more uh, no-nonsense, not joking around. Somebody that's not like Riker. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Riker is serious about his job, but he can be light and have a sense of humor also. Which, by the way, is, well, I, I'll get off of this quickly. Riker was originally written, you probably re read some of these little stories about this stuff too, but Riker was originally written to be very Jellicoe-ish, very by the book, very stiff, kind of stiff. And the actor, Frakes, 
was like, oh, this isn't me. I'll play it that way, but uh, as soon as he had a chance to loosen up a bit, he did. Right. I mean, he, he was Decker from Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yeah, well... basically the same character. Well, yeah, I, I agree with that, but... But that's the way Decker was. Everything was... By the book, and Kirk was well, Kirk he wasn't was the that... one coming in there, kind of shaking things up. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, but he was not a stiffy. I mean, he was not a jellico. I, I don't think no, Decker no. was. He also but, didn't but, have yeah. power either. <laughs> his well, power got first... taken away in his very first scene. Yeah, well, but at least he was he was first command, uh, you know, first officer, first right? officer. But yes, nothing like being demoted. <laughs> from being captain. Anyway, so the main thing is, I think this book was good at taking what we knew about Jellico from what Chain of Command, I think, was the uh, multi-part right. episode. Yep. I think they did a good job of taking what we knew about Jellico and projecting it into this story. Right. I liked it, and I liked that it wasn't from his point of view, because I think well, that would have been too dry. Good point. I mean, quite frankly, it wasn't really about him. It was about her. Right. It was indirectly about Jellico. I, yeah. Th- this this very much was a story about uh, what Commander Wong was that was Wong right. her last name? Yeah, yeah, that's her name. It was very much a story about her, but Jellico was in there. Right. So it's kind of interesting they took that approach. Yeah, and I'm kind of glad they did because because it kind of got you to see how. An established crew, for the most part, except for Wong, yeah, can thrive in a situation where, um, where he's commander. Whereas, you know, when he took command of the Enterprise D, we were all we hated him because, you know, he's you know he's not doing things right. You know, he's a jerk, right? But, <laughs> but here he is in an established situation. Everybody but Wong is already familiar with his command style, and and it obviously works, right? So I, I liked it. I, I'm glad they did, went that route as opposed to telling it from his point of view. Yeah. So was good. Uh, did enjoy it. The art I loved, the uh, the paintings. I can't say I loved it, but it was good. It was right. good. It was the watercolor paint-by-numbers kind of style. It's lovely. Quit saying paint-by-numbers. It's not paint-by-numbers. Paint it's paint-by-numbers. <laughs> I liked seeing the uh, the – I don't remember his species name, but uh, oh yeah, the guy the, that looks like Oryx from the animated series. Right, he's the uh, pilot. Right, three arms. Three I think arms. They, I three think legs. they actually. Yeah. Oh, three legs. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Okay. I definitely saw the third arm. Uh, yeah. Cool. You don't, I don't think you ever see his legs. Well, you might when he's like getting up from his chair that one time. Right. Yep, I, I like seeing him. And then there's also another strange uh, alien uh, in one of the hallway scenes that looks like he's maybe eight feet tall something like that he's just this giant guy in a starfleet uniform with little spikes on his head right if you're uh if you're reading the uh the cbr thing it's uh page i'm not reading the cbr oh then the page numbers there's no page numbers so it's when she, it's <laughs> yeah, when i've been scanning yeah, i've been scanning it, and so far i don't see him it's during her little – right before the, the instant calls yellow alert. It's on that same page. Oh, at the beginning. Right. 
So just it's the top of that page, just this giant dude in a Starfleet uniform just walking down the hall. Cool. Just interesting. I, I liked it. Oh, okay. Right. Well, no one's near him. Yeah, but he's gigantic. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so he's got almost like like horse legs. Huh. Right. Interesting. It's different. I don't know what, yeah. what species he is. Right. Hmm. I'd never seen that guy. Yeah. He's kind of in the in the mid ground mid mid not the background exact. Eh. No. He, yeah, okay. Got it. And then my really my last comment. I mean, like I said, I like this issue, so I don't really have a lot to say one way or the other about it, but um the art for the Cardassian Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. Is that supposed to be an actor that we know? Because he looks familiar. Yeah. But then I'm well, wondering if he just, if you know, J.K. Woodward just put Cardassian makeup on an actor that we already. <laughs> okay, so the cover made it look like Galdicott. You think so? Yeah. the The guy on the cover looked like Galdicott to me, but on the inside, it looked like. David Warner. Is it David Warner? So he's the guy that in Star Trek VI played the Chancellor, the Klingon Chancellor. I mean, he's been in Star Trek. He's played like about everything. You mentioned mentioned Star Trek V. He was, I think he was the human. Yeah. He was the human delegate. David Warner. He's been in a ton of uh, Star Trek and other genre things. Huh. That's what he looks like to me. Yeah. Okay. That's, That's my opinion. Well, I believe you, because like I said, I kept well, re- kept reading it. And I'm like, he looks familiar, but I don't know who he's supposed yeah. to be. Cool. It's not, a, it's not a question of believing. That's just my, you know, just my opinion. <laughs> That's what I saw in it. But yeah, it, it looks like David Warner. If you do a quick you search on David Warner and see a picture of him, you're going to look at him and go, "Oh, I know that guy." Now, whether you agree yeah. that he looks like like this this guy this guy or not is up to you, but you you definitely know David Warner. If I got his name right. Yeah, I, I did a quick search on David Warner and, and nothing's coming up. So, like I said, I I, I trust you. I'll look up the Klingon. David Warner guy. actor. He's right there. David Warner. I really? Did, oh, I didn't, let, me t- let me type in actor. Well, I, I just, just did, did David Warner. And the first thing it came up with was David <laughs> Warner actor. And then I just clicked on Okay. There he is. He's an old dude. Oh, yeah, he is now. Yeah, he was in Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek... Oh, he's in tons of them. He was in Star Trek VI. He was in Star Trek V. Why does Memory Beta not know him? Stupid Memory Beta. if you do search for David Warner, actor Star Trek, and then look at the images for him, I mean, they're... It shows him in Star Trek V as the diplomat, who's all kind of unshaved. Oh, well, he was a Cardassian, so it must be him. Oh, actually, yes. He was the Cardassian who was... Oh! Oh! Oh, interesting. Yeah, he was the Cardassian that was... I'm pretty sure he's the one that was torturing Picard in um, Chain of Command. Oh, wow. Okay. So... This is like a precursor to... Yeah, and actually, there's there's a photo of him uh, from that episode. I can see it right there. 
Star Trek Next Generation. Yep, Chain of Command. It's from Chain of Command. And that looks very similar to some of the panels here. Damn, I'm good. Yeah, but his name doesn't match. What, what do you mean? Oh, well, that, I'm not saying he's the same Cardassian. Right, right. I do agree that he looks like him. It's interesting, actually, that they chose to model the Cardassian in this book off of Warner. Right. No, that was really good. Good call. So maybe kind of like the way... Um... <laughs> Kind of the way the guy who played Goldcott was a Carda- a random Cardassian in Star Trek The Next Generation and then became Goldcott later. Oh, yeah. Okay, there you go. Right. So I guess in that same line of thought, uh, <laughs> David Warner could have played two different Cardassians. Right. We just never saw this guy in the show. And didn't Armin Shimmerman play a random Ferengi early on? The very, then... Exactly. He played the very first Ferengi we ever saw and then he became the lovable quark. <laughs> Wacky. <laughs> Who would have thought that would turn into a multi-season gig? Right. Yeah, definitely Gull Zarkat looks just like David Warner. Good call. Okay. Cool. Did you know that Ronnie Cox is a singer and songwriter? The same Ronnie Cox? The same Ronnie Cox. The same Ronnie Cox who played Jellico. No. Yes. He. You. Okay, so he... Think about all the movies you've, and TV shows you've seen him in. Usually he's kind of authoritarian. Usually he's kind of – he's the jerk in, right. in many things that he's in. But he's apparently a really nice guy, and I actually read an interview of him that was on uh, – I forgot which Star Trek site. But it was a Star Trek site, and they did an interview of him. So right now he's like on tour all the time. Uh, Is that right? Playing a lot of dates, and he's doing his singing and stuff. And it's not like somebody came too late in his career. Apparently, that's how he started his career. And some of the first acting gigs he got was because he could play music and could sing. Huh. Which is like, wow. The last thing I imagine is Jellicoe singing. (laughs) Right. Or the guy he played in, in RoboCop. In Total Recall? In Total Recall? Oh my god, he was such a jerk in Total Recall. Anyway, so all those characters don't envision them singing a folksy kind of uh, (laughs) style of music, but there you go. Oh, wow. Who would think? That is interesting stuff. Yeah. Hmm. I thought that the conflict with the Cardassians was very odd in that it totally seemed manufactured to me. So what did they really hope to achieve by attacking that science station? I mean, they talked about the idea that they were going to use the science station equipments to do their own research or something like that. Right. But did they really think they would be able to take over that station, take out a starship, and then Starfleet would just let them do it? Right. I mean – or were they going to get their stuff done before Starfleet responded? They would have been moving pretty quick. Right. So it was and, like, what I was mean, the long-term play here? I don't get it. I don't even see the short-term play. Yeah. Because, I mean, did he, he didn't know that they didn't have short-range sensors. So did he really think he could rush through the system, attack the, attack the station, and get whatever he needs before 
the Excelsior class ship would catch up with them and stop them. Right. Yeah, no, it didn't make sense. No. So that comes under the heading of just don't think too much, just go with it. So. <laughs> right. Anyway. It just looked cool. Right. I mean, right. Okay, that's my last comment. That's it? Yep. All right, so that wraps up this issue with the Alien Spotlight Captain's Log random episode series. Okay. Uh, episode. Sounds good. So back to DC? So volume one? Next week we'll be back to DC. Uh, volume one, issues 25 through 27. Cool. Getting back to Kirk and Company. Yeah, I- I'm kind of looking forward to when they start getting closer to um, Star Trek Four, and they have to explain, you know, get get Spock back on back. Oh, I've realigned things. Right. Get true things back up again with the so movie. The, that's probably going to start happening pretty soon, I think. Ah, cool. But anyways, so uh, yeah, we get that next week, and then uh, maybe we should do some uh, ongoing here pretty soon. Let's. Thanks for joining us, everybody. On the review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, stcomic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.